welcome to the Bridge the Divide podcast with Erica Turner and Heidi Wheeler, hosts and founders of the group Bridge the Divide Cedarburg. We hope to provide a forum for discussion and action around racial reconciliation. We seek to identify instances of inequality, foster empathy, and educate others to recognize their part in problems and solutions in Ozaki County and beyond. Welcome to today's podcast of Bridge the Divide. Erica and I are here and we have a lot to talk about today. Erica, what what do you want to tell us about what's going on in our library this month? Um, The Cedarburg Public Library agreed to host um, an exhibit from the Wisconsin Historical Society and it's called Crossing the Line. It's a a traveling display it's basically about the the open housing marches of 1967 and 68. It's a, a probably 10 panels of pictures and some letters, some articles, things that were happening in that time frame to help tell the story about the the civil rights marches that happened in Milwaukee. And these and I wasn't alive when these were going on and they were not in my history books in school. And I'm guessing that a lot of, for a lot of our listeners, they will not be well versed right. in the history of the open housing marches in Milwaukee. And even if you are listening somewhere other than Milwaukee, uh, there's a lot of history here that applies to you. And so we want to actually start with a history lesson today. Later in our show, we're going to be interviewing um, Dr. Margaret Peggy Rosga who is uh, Father Grappi's widow, and Father Grappi uh, was pretty instrumental in the, the marches in the, the 60s. Yep, so we're going to have her a little bit later in the segment. Um, she was very instrumental in the open housing marches of Milwaukee in the 1960s. But um, where we wanted to start in history was um, with a quote by author Isabel Wilkerson. She is a woman of color, and she wrote the, uh, a book called The Warmth of Other Sons. And Eric and I did not know this before we got in here, but I have it sitting on the library shelf to pick up afterwards, Mm -hmm. and she ordered it, and it's coming to her, so it's weird how these things happen, but (laughs) it is not a brand new book either. It's a little bit older. We just came upon it at the same time, Right, right? Um, but it's about the Great Migration, and if you aren't familiar with that, um, basically at the beginning of the 20th century, before the migration began, began, 90% of all African Americans were living in the South. And so this was in the early 1900s. And then really this wasn't a planned thing, but from 1917 or so to 1970, there was a mass exodus of African Americans from the South to the North and to the West. Um, So I want to say a quote by Isabel Wilkerson because she's an expert on it. She interviewed hundreds of people that actually went through the migration. She says, by the end of the Great Migration, nearly half of African Americans were living outside the South in great cities of the North and West. So when this migration began, you had a really small number of people who were living in the North, and they were surviving as porters or domestics or preachers. Some had risen to levels of professional jobs, but they were in some ways protected because they were so small. They did not pose any threat. There was a kind of alchemy or acceptance of that small minority of people in these cities. 
So when you had this great wave and flood of people coming in from the south, many of them were untutored and unaware of the ways of the big cities. And in some ways, that was threatening to those who were already there because they feared the positions that they had worked so hard to achieve. And that was tenuous at best in these big cities. And that's why there was a great deal of resistance. So that's a long quote, but it's um, a good summary of um, how the Great Migration um, is kind of the first step that mm-hmm. led to these open housing marches. Mm-hmm. And and the folks that were in the South were used to the tension between, specifically between blacks and whites. Um, there were, the, the Jim Crow laws were just rampant. There was, there was a lot of uh, racial tension. There was a lot of unfairness. There's a lot of anger. But then there was a chance to come North and to have something better, to be able to make more money, to be able to to have a career in all these new jobs opening up in the North, to be able to take care of your family a lot better than than you would have um, in the South. So, um, so people were leaving for a better way. Of it's a better life. way. Mm-hmm. Um, what else I hear in that quote is is that people became afraid when it it meant a cost to them. So when their socioeconomic status or stability might change or their comfort or things that they were used to might change, then then they became fearful. If it was only a small number of, of minorities or people in their city that didn't affect their way of life in any way, fine, they can be here. But then when people started coming in in mass and changing what they were used to, their fear began. Mm-hmm. I think it was easier to be separated. They are down there. We are up here. And and once we started crossing lines in mass, we weren't happy. All right. So then um, we're, we're doing everything pretty high level today because <laughs> there is a lot of history <laughs> here. Um, and there's, you know, dozens of podcasts in this history. Mm-hmm. But we at least want to touch on a few of the other things that happened. So we told you you know, the great migration started in the 19 teens to twenties and then went through, you know, to take you up to the housing March in the early to late sixties, a lot of things happened in those 40, 45 years. Um, and so Erica, do you want to start talking about some of those things? Sure. Sure. Um, one of the, um, one of the things that that also touches my family that I remember, it, I don't remember, the the end of the Second World War, you have all of these GIs who are now needing a place to live, wanting to start their families. Where are they gonna go? And so there was kind of a um, a manufacturing of housing for the veterans that were coming back. And again, then you had to decide who was gonna live next to who. If we're gonna have soldiers that we respected and we were very happy they they worked so hard for us welcome them home use the the VA loan whatever the the uh, I don't know if it was called the VA loan then but you know a loan to be able to get a house to be able to start your family using the GI bill and mm-hmm. and those things benefited white veterans more than they benefited the black veterans that were coming back from war. So that was a lot of brand new housing thrown up. So even in theory, GI bills and other loans were available to all people. Sure. We we have learned (laughs) through our reading and studies and listening to people that the reality was they were not offered 
and with any sort of equality. Correct. Correct. So that was the beginning of um, systemic depression of blacks uh, under whites because whites were given advantages that put them ahead for generations to come. Right, right, right. We've talked about um, in some of our meetings for Bridge the Divide, we've talked about the fact that your legacy, it, it's a, a monetary legacy that comes along with mm-hmm. it. So when your grandfather was able to get the VA loan to buy that house and then sell that house, taking the equity, buying a bigger, better house, uh, selling that house, using it to help his grandchildren uh, purchase houses, to go to school, um, the college money. Those are kind of advantages that came with the legacy of wealth in, in some families that did not happen in other families because my you know my grandfather couldn't use the VA loan when he came home from World War II. So, right. so along with that, um, we had more and more whites leaving the city. We had um, urban renewal. Urban renewal. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is... Uh, this is, it's kind of, it's hard to talk about sometimes because you think people really wouldn't do that to other people. But there was a time when you could say your way of life, your home where you're living, your apartment where you're living, your family is not as important as my family. And we need to build a highway to help the new suburbanites get back and forth to work. So we're just going to tear down your house and we're going to build a highway here. Mm-hmm. So um, displaced people gathering in in large numbers because they have nowhere else to go while the folks that moved out to the suburbs are are enjoying and fruits of their labor and thriving um, and thriving yeah. right so that's a a very short pc history of what <laughs> started leading to what we want to talk about more today the um the open housing marches and we will continue with that after the break Housing segregation, it wasn't an idea of self-segregating. There wasn't the thought that blacks in Milwaukee just wanted to be separate from whites that were maybe in the suburbs. There were actual barriers that were that were set up to help support segregation. They, there was redlining. You had uh, laws that were in place. You had mortgage lending practices. You had realtors that were actively seeking to keep non-whites separate from whites in in mm-hmm. where they were living. Um, so it was just, it was, it, it wasn't by accident, um, and it wasn't. It it was self-serving for the folks that were not living in um, the inner city, the inner core, central city. Mm-hmm. And this was happening you know, all the way up until, you know, enter, let's enter one of our first key players. Mm -hmm. We want to tell you about Val Phillips. Uh, She was an amazing woman. Um, I don't know if she was born in Milwaukee, but 
don't know. I don't know where she was born, but she is a Milwaukee woman. Um, she was the first uh, female African-American to graduate from the University of Wisconsin-Madison Law School. Uh, she was the, the state of Wisconsin's first black judge. Um, she was the first black candidate to win statewide office in Wisconsin. So she was a woman of firsts. And she was um, she found herself on the Common Council in the 19. 19- Uh, 50s. She ran for three years. And I I have to read this, this quote, Um, she needed money to campaign. um, And she found out that her husband had saved up money to buy her a mink coat. And so she said to him, Dale, I'd rather run than have a mink coat. And if if it's for me, that's what I should, you know, that's what I want to do with it. And so she gave up her coat money to campaign. And she finally got on the council, this common council's uh, like a board of people that support the mayor, help make laws in the town. And so she began to fight for open housing in 1962 when she introduced an ordinance called the Phillips Housing Ordinance. And it was a bill that outlawed housing discrimination. Um, And she introduced it to her peers on the Milwaukee Common Council. And um, there was a fair housing law in place at the time, but it was very weak and did not cover all housing in the city. So she introduces this to her council, and do you know what the, do you remember what the vote was, Erica? <laughs> was it 18 to 1? It was 18 to 1. <laughs> and so Phillips was the only one that voted in favor of the bill at the time. She tried three more times to get the bill passed without success. So she had this vision early on in the 60s. I, I think she was the only woman of color and the only only person of color and the only woman on the council at I think the time. So. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. Um, and because I remember hearing like the guys would do these backroom deals and not invite her <laughs> or they would even say things like, who's watching your kids tonight? Or, right. Right. How, how so, dare you? So I, she was treated, <laughs> you know, yeah. so poorly and so not equal. Yeah. But she had the vision for what was just and right. And so she continued the work. Um, and so then I don't know if you want to talk about a little bit about the entering of the NAACP Youth Council. Right. Um, so I would also submit that when we talk about fair housing practices, that they would definitely seem more fair to some than mm-hmm. others. Right. <laughs> so um, it you can't have a city full of people who are working hard and trying to do their best to constantly feeling the pressure of we don't want you here we don't think that um that you are that you're giving anything to the city that we that we want and and the feelings i think escalated when we talk about in the the late 60s there's there's unfair practices everywhere in every aspect of life for an African-American living in Milwaukee in the 60s. Mm. So it just kind of escalated. We are, um, as a part of this crossing the line, we're going to learn about how the NAACP Youth Council was gathered. Um, Father Grappi was um, one of their main advisors and how they're gathering to show people that they think that they're worthy, that they're ready to stand up for their rights their expectation is that it's nonviolent, but nonviolent doesn't mean you can't have civil unrest or mm-hmm. some some discord as a part of it. So they're gathering up the youth council, marching for 200 days uh, across the what do they call the bridge? The 
the, uh, the longest, longest bridge, bridge. <laughs> from Poland to Africa. So it's from the north side um, to the city's south side. And so I don't know how many miles that is or how long that actually was. Right, right. But every every day walking across that bridge to groups of people who did not want them there, who did not think that there was anything wrong with the housing practices because they were able to live where they wanted to live. Their lives were a, a, as good as they thought it could be at that time. And the fact that we have... Um, youth that we have of NAACP we have other civil rights leaders marching saying it's not good enough we want this to change there were they show some of the videos of bottles being thrown and signs up and people yelling at you and so I really can't imagine every day going on that walk Mm -hmm. back and forth knowing that the folks that are around don't want you there Mm. so we're excited to be able to introduce you to one of our guests um, who was actually there at the time. She was there. And so we are bringing history to you, and we're going to interview her in our next segment. And here with us this evening is Dr. Margaret Razga. Um, she is the one we've been talking about um, from the open housing marches in the 1960s. And we are so excited to have a, a historical account from an actual participant and observer. Mm-hmm. I mean, what better way to experience history than exactly to have someone that's been there and been a part of it. So we're lucky to have you tonight. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm yeah. glad to be here. Yeah, thank you for coming. Um, so why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, how you became involved in the open housing marches of the 60s, and what was your, your role was? Okay. Uh, I got interested in civil rights actually from watching television. Uh, <laughs> television is good for you then, right? <laughs> good. Uh, well, news, news reports. I remember mm. seeing Fannie Lou Hamer testify at the 1964 Democratic Convention. That's probably had the biggest influence on me because prior to watching her testify about being jailed and beaten hmm. for trying to register to vote, I assumed anybody who wanted to vote could. Um, and it shocked me, and I thought, is this America? Uh, and and then civil rights stories were prominent in, in the news, including the uh, murder of uh, Michael Schwerner, James Cheney, and Andrew Goodman. And so I began to think, well, what can I do? Um, and it happened that after the Selma to Montgomery march, I did not go to that, but after that, some um, students came to the campus where I was at Alvernal College and were recruiting for a summer program. So I volunteered to work on voter registration in rural Alabama. And it opened my eyes to what uh, strikes me now as unbelievable that I didn't see before I went. Mm. But before I saw the poverty and the racial discrimination in rural Alabama, I did not see what was going on in Milwaukee. And I felt like I would be a hypocrite if I worked in the South and did nothing at home. Um, We were a group that went together to Alabama, uh, including African-American as well as white students. 
And so I now had African-American friends. Mm. And suddenly I've wondered, why is it that all the African-Americans live on the north side mm-hmm. and none, no African-Americans live in my neighborhood? Right. Never occurred to me to ask that question before. Mm. Um, so I uh, joined the NAACP Youth Council in Milwaukee along with several other people who had been in that group of Southern volunteers. Mm-hmm. And um, and so we started to work on a number of issues. Actually, we didn't start with uh, open housing. Um, th- there was a series of actions about the uh, Eagles Club in Milwaukee that had a whites-only clause, and then mm-hmm. about judges and other public officials belonging to the Eagles Club. And as we started to work on housing, we weren't immediately looking at getting an ordinance or law to prevent discrimination um, in rental and purchase of properties. We started with pushing for greater enforcement of the building code Hmm. um, because the judges who belonged to the Eagles Club were uh, finding finding uh, landlords who own lots of inner city properties, uh, finding them guilty, but then the penalty would be one dollar. Oh man! Oh. Okay. Uh, so we started to push for stronger enforcement of the building code. Um, How did you do that? Uh, going to the courtroom when a landlord would mm-hmm. be on trial. Actually, uh, Father Grappi, who was the advisor to the Youth Council, uh, associate pastor at St. Boniface Church, and one of his duties was to teach religion to mm-hmm. the students in St. Boniface School. They had an elementary school. Mm, okay. Um, and he had a, a, what came to be called liberation theology orientation. Um, so he would talk about problems in the city uh, and and the students already knew because they were living it. Um, actually the the members of the youth council who went to St. Boniface School remember that Hank Aaron's daughter uh, was a classmate of theirs um, because he could not find a place to live. This hmm. is before he was real famous. Uh-huh. Hmm. Um so he sent his kids to St. Boniface and probably lived somewhere in, in the neighborhood. I don't know about where he he lived. Um, but anyway, he, so the children in the school already knew that there were these housing problems. Uh, and so he, he would take them on a field trip to the um, courtroom of a judge when uh, a landlord was on, on trial. Hmm. Uh, and that was the main way. Wow. I think that that's, you know, the strength of hearing you talk about it is that you really didn't know until you saw. You mm-hmm. had to see it, and then you could feel the empathy for mm-hmm. the folks that were around you, that were that were not having all of the, the not even luxuries, kind of the, the, basic, mm-hmm. <laughs> the basic rights that you had. That's... Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one of the things that we have to try to work on to get people to see things that you can't you can't always tell somebody what's happening. Sometimes they just have to go out and see yeah. it. Well, right. 
I mean, it's sort of natural to look at your own experience and then generalize from that. So I didn't face housing uh, uh, discrimination, Mm -hmm. so it wasn't real to me until I saw it happen. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yet when you get beyond your own experience, then you realize that not everything um, is what your experience was. Not everybody's experience is what your experience is. There's different realities than your own. Right, right. So you did mention um, Father Grappi as one of the advisors for the NAACP Youth Council. What other key players um, were there in starting to ramp up towards these marches? Well, when the um, focus of attention shifted from pushing for a stronger enforcement of the building code to a fair housing law, of course, Alder Val Phillips was Mm -hmm. important. She uh, was the first African-American, the first woman elected to the Milwaukee Common Council in 1956. And and, and her purpose in running, one of the large purposes, was she wanted a fair housing bill. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes people say, well, you can't move out of um, a poverty situation if you don't have any money. Housing costs money. Well, she was a lawyer married to a lawyer. They had money, mm-hmm. um, and they could not find a, they, a place to live. Uh, they were living above a drugstore on Walnut Street. So she she wanted to um, buy a house, and she wanted to have the protection of the law as she was looking for a house. Uh, so as early as 1963, she introduced a fair housing bill, but she was only one of 18 mm-hmm. council members, and she was the only one voting for it, mm-hmm. and um, it didn't get much attention at all. Mm. Uh, so uh, we asked her if she would like some support, and she definitely did. Okay. I'm just I'm thinking about just this systemic oppression that once you see it, you see it. Right. And you have the choice to do something, anything, or to just close your eyes and pretend like it's not happening. And even how back in the 1960s, maybe you thought before you saw it that everything was fine, or that's sort of what you alluded to. Right. And then you realize, no, it's not. And I, I, can, I know how I was five, six years ago. Everything's fine. We're in a post-racial America. This is not a problem. Correct. Because it was not a problem in my life. Mm-hmm. And so just encouraging our listeners to be, be looking, be watching, watch the news, read the books. Are, are, you, are you sure that it's still not a problem right. if you don't think that it is? Right. Hmm. Um, so I guess that was one, another thing we wanted to ask you about is um, how does it feel uh, when you have a perspective that other people around you fail to share, but you believe is right. Ooh, that's a <laughs> tough one. <laughs> um, I suppose that there is an emotional um, gumbo. Mm. <laughs> Lots of components uh, in it, some of them pretty mild, some of them pretty spicy. Um, I like that metaphor. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, sometimes it it's anger. Like, mm-hmm. can't you see mm-hmm. 
What are you saying that for? And, and other times, um, especially for me, when I remember my own ignorance, I can um, identify with the person in terms of that experience and mm. relate that experience. Well, I used to think whatever the situation calls for, um, but I learned uh, this and that. I was on a radio show once where um, some one of the callers, it was a with live callers, mm-hmm. one of the callers said he was all for fair housing. And this is recent, this is in the last couple of years. He was all for fair housing except um, for his fear. And I said, well, what are you afraid of? And he said, well, violence, the commotion that might happen in the neighborhood. And I said, what commotion? Well, African-Americans. I said, yep, that stereotype of African-Americans <laughs> is being violent. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Um, and, and so I addressed that. Actually, I still am friends with people that I first met in the NAACP Youth Council, uh, wonderful families. Um, my children are friends with their children. Um, but if all you know, if the only thing you see, uh, local news mm-hmm. is largely f- fires and crime mm-hmm. and um, close-ups of uh, African Americans who have been involved in crime, and if that mm-hmm. if that's your only contact, well, you might generalize from from that. Um, so I think it's really important to have situations where people can be together, mm-hmm. and even if they're, it, it doesn't have to be working on something together, just being in the same place. There was a, a columnist for a Milwaukee. Weekly, who at, I think it's an online paper actually, who said, "Well, where are the places in Milwaukee where uh, African Americans and white people and Latinx and anybody else are just comfortable in the same space?" Mm. Um, and she invited people to send her uh, their lists of of places, and there are a few parks. Um, where that's the case, the downtown public library is a, a case. There are a couple of restaurants where that's the case. But people kind of ran out of examples after 10 or 12. Mm. Um, and w- so one of the things, th- there was talk in Milwaukee for a while about it's instituting a parking fee along Lake Drive uh, where the beaches are. Mm-hmm. Um, and... The problem with that is that's one of the places where African-Americans and whites are in the same space and everybody's fine and it's not a problem. Uh, And if you institute a parking fee, there's going to be people who will not go as often or not go at all because they can't afford it. Maybe some white people, but also some African-Americans. So you have to look at... um, Unintended effects, you have to be alert to unintended effects. Uh, the people who were proposing that were just looking at the Milwaukee County budget and budget. saying we have to get money sure. from someplace. Uh, and this seems to be a popular place, so that's a place we could get money. But if you begin to examine the unintended consequences, you realize that's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. 
so much wisdom here. I know, I know. How many hours do we have? I know, I want to sit and listen. (laughs) Um, I did want to take you back one more step to the the NAACP Youth Council, because we in Ozaki County, in case you don't know those listeners, we have an Ozaki County chapter of the NAACP. And um, we recently took a picture. Uh, We had a picnic, and we were half. I, I think there was half, maybe half people of color, the other half are white. So we're we're together working in the NAACP. We're trying to reinstitute an, uh, a youth council for our county. And I think one of the obstacles that we have is, well, I'm not black. I can't go join the NAACP. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, youth that may be interested in looking at the community and figuring out how to better the world that they have to grow up in, but they think, oh, well, but I'm white, so I can't be in the NAACP. So can you tell me what, if anything, was a kind of a, a catalyst that moved you over to say, sure, it's okay. It's a great, it's a great uh, community thing. Let's, love that let's question. join it. Yeah. Well, it always helps to have a buddy. Um, and one of the people that I was uh, working in Alabama with uh, also joined the youth council. He was African American, but I joined with him. Uh, and so, whatever discomfort level I might have had was minimized because he, I was with him. Mm-hmm. Um, the youth council in Milwaukee in those days was always at least partially white, um, it was always majority black. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, there weren't a lot of choices for young people who were concerned about social justice. Uh, and young people are interested, I find today, in social justice, and they're also interested in mm-hmm. action. Um, and so other, others joined, um, especially when the housing marches began to gain momentum. Uh, then people just knew that they wanted to be be part of it. Um, it's it's actually advice that's still given today. You know, go go if you can go to demonstrations or go to groups with a buddy. Mm-hmm. Find somebody mm-hmm. who'll go with you and ease that comfort level. It's a good mm-hmm. suggestion. Mm-hmm. Um, let's take a little break and we'll come on the other side and talk about uh, more about the actual marches and, and what went on. was the first part of our interview with Dr. Margaret Rosga. Um, we've, we've learned so much, and we have uh, the second half of her interview when we come back next week. Tune in again. Thanks for listening to Bridge the Divide.